Good morning. It's good to be with you. Be in Jonah chapter 3 this morning. Just to give you a heads up of what's coming, you'll hear more about this in the uh, <clears throat> members meeting after the service today, but uh, we have two more weeks left in Jonah, this week and next week, and we'll finish the book. And uh, then beginning in November, we'll have a four-week sermon series on the church. Uh, just from the results that came back from uh, the survey, uh, it seemed like more people had a greater desire to understand kind of the structure uh, and the different positions here at Crosspoint. So uh, Shane and I will be working through uh, a series on the church. So the first week, Shane will be preaching about members and what are, what's the role and responsibility of members uh, then the next week, uh, I'll preach a sermon on deacons, and we'll have our deacon ordination that same Sunday, and uh, we'll look at from Acts 6 about what do deacons do and their responsibilities, and then we'll look at elders the next week, and then the whole church, the local church. So we're excited about that. Hopefully, that'll bring greater clarity to all of us on what does it mean for us to be a local church, and what does it mean uh, for those within it, deacons, elders, and members, uh, what is their responsibilities at that in that church? And so, but, um, but before then, we will finish Jonah. So if you would stand for the reading of God's word, we will begin in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called out for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let us pray. God, I pray this morning for us as your people that we come into this place um, from different backgrounds, different, uh, different emotional states, wherever we may be on the spectrum, we might be mourning, we might be grieving over something, we might be joyful and excited, hopeful, God. Wherever we may be right now, God, I pray that you would meet us there by your spirit and your word and that we would see Christ clearly from it. God, I pray, Lord, that what we have for reading here in Nineveh would be the case here at Crosspoint and across the world. There, that there would be great revival and that it would begin with repentance, O oh Lord. People turning from their evil ways and turning to Christ. God, we pray that for our church, and we pray that for our world. Lord, 
may it begin here in us individually that there would be revival that begins in our own hearts and lives where we confess our sins and we run to Christ. Lord, we love you. Be with us now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we get to chapter 3, and we've been some interesting places so far in the book of Jonah. We've seen Jonah from chapter 1 be a very rebellious prophet who is, does not take instructions very, uh, very well from the Lord, tries to run away, and uh, then he gets eaten by a big fish, prays an awesome prayer filled with many psalms and resurrection hope uh, that Shane discussed last week. And here in Jonah chapter 3, it feels like Jonah's turned over a new leaf, right? He's learned his lesson. You cannot run away from God. And if you try to, you will learn the hard way, right? And so it feels like, man, this is a new day for Jonah. He's gotten the message. But has he really gotten the message? Has he really, has he really gotten it? Has it really gotten through his head? Well, we're not going to find out that answer this week. We'll find out that answer next week in chapter 4. But this week, what we're going to learn is this, is that we're going to find out that God can work great revival despite his prophet's feelings, and maybe even despite, despite Jonah's um, ambivalence, coldness, uh, just dismissiveness, and maybe even neglect of his ministry. That God can even work despite all those things and bring great revival and repentance to sinners. And this morning, that's what we're going to learn in Jonah chapter 3. Is this that Jonah chapter 3 centers on God's relentless pursuit to save humble and repentant sinners. Jonah chapter 3 centers on this, God's relentless pursuit to save humble, repentant sinners. Let's look at this, number one. In the first three verses, we're going to find out a very interesting characteristic of God. And this is it. This is it. The unrelenting Lord. To be unrelenting, to be relentless, to not give up. Do you know anybody like that? You know anybody who just, they never give up. Despite the trial, despite the hurdles, despite whatever hardships may come in, they are steadfast. They don't give up. You know who I think about? I think about Rudy. You know, you would think I would say something like, I think about my wife, or I think about my mother, or I think about, you know, I think about those two. But for some reason, Rudy always comes to mind. He is just a relentless, and okay, everybody knows who I'm talking about, right? Like Rudy? Okay, Rudy, Rudy. Okay, just want to make sure. Rudy is a relentless character. If you can remember the movie, like, he does not give up. He has everything against him. I mean, he's living in the locker room at one point, in the janitor's closet, but he is going to play for who? Notre Dame. He's going to play for Notre Dame because his family all loves Notre Dame, all his friends love Notre Dame. It doesn't matter. He is not giving up. He is relentless in that pursuit to play for Notre Dame. And guess what? The movie ends what? Rudy gets to play. Rudy gets to play. And he makes a tackle, right? He's relentless. He is unrelenting despite all the hardships. And this relentless pursuit of a goal is actually the same characteristic that we see of God here in Jonah chapter 3. Is that God constantly and is consistently pursuing his prophet. 
And he is constantly pursuing his mission to reach the Ninevites and to bring them salvation. Is that God is a re- relentless in this mission that he has. And so look at where we're at now in the first couple of verses. Is that Jonah has been vomited out of the belly of the fish. He's still got that stench all over him. And now he's being recommissioned by the Lord. If you look at the first three verses of Jonah chapter 3, and you flip back over a page, and you look at the first three verses of Jonah chapter 1, they sound really similar, right? If you read Jonah chapter 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And sounds just like Jonah chapter 3, right? And that's because this is a recommissioning service. It didn't take the first time, so we've got to do it a second time now. And so the Lord is recommissioning Jonah on this mission to reach the Ninevites. And it's so interesting that, that the author puts in this kind of determination of the Lord here. Listen to what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the what? The second time. The second time. Really emphasizing this fact is that the Lord is determined to fulfill his purposes. That he's going to have to even come back a second time to Jonah so that it sticks this time. That's what... One author by the name of Dorsey says, it's the Lord's determination on display here to preach repentance to the Ninevites. The the Lord is unrelenting in his pursuits of Jonah in order to fulfill his mission, so much so that he comes to him a second time to recommission him. And the reason is, is because Nineveh is a great city. Now I want you to look at verse 3, and I think there's an interesting footnote here if you have it in in your Bibles. This is chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. If you look in your, your footnotes, if you have a, a, a Bible, it, it says the footnotes, a great city to God. And that is actually what the Hebrew says. A great city to God. And what we're hearing is this. is that Jonah may not feel like Nineveh is important, but Nineveh is important to God. It is a great city to God. Jonah may not be concerned about the Ninevites and their salvation, but God is. Jonah may have written them off, but God has not. Is that he has not forgotten about them in this whole process. You would think, okay, God has been so focused on getting Jonah back on the right track. He's forgotten what he said in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 about the Ninevites, right? But no, because God is unrelenting in his purposes and in his will and in his mission. And that just because Jonah the prophet may have disregarded and been dismissive is that God has not forgotten about the Ninevites in this whole time of trying to get Jonah back on track. Is that Nineveh is a great city to God. God is concerned about that. He's concerned about them. And I think we learn something from this. Is that our disobedience doesn't deter the Lord's determination. Is that if the Lord has determined something, our disobedience is not going to deter Him that. Is that as much as we may push back against it and seek to go against all His will and His purposes and His commands, is that our disobedience isn't powerful enough to usurp or overthrow His purposes in this world. 
You may be stubborn, and you may be the most stubborn person on the face of this earth. But it will not go against God's purposes. Our disobedience doesn't deter the Lord's determination. Because what we're seeing from the Lord is that He pursues sinners like Jonah and like the Ninevites over and over again to a second time. Is that God's concern, God's concern for the Ninevites, it, it, it motivates his pursuit of them through this prophet Jonah. And I would just say this to us, Cross Point, is that if God is concerned about sinners and reaching sinners and saving sinners, should it not be our concern as well? Should it not be our concern that people hear the gospel? And that's why we do pray for our neighbors. It's because God is concerned about reaching sinners, so His people who have been reached by God through Christ Jesus should also be concerned about God reaching sinners. And to be instruments of the Lord. Is that God's concern and pursuit of sinners, that actually should be our motivation to pursue sinners with the gospel. Is that because God is concerned about the Ninevites? That should have motivated Jonah. Okay, God, he's concerned about the Ninevites, so I should be concerned about the Ninevites too. So I need to go and share the gospel with them. I need to go preach to them like God has told me. Same thing for us, church. If God is concerned about sinners, then we should also be concerned about sinners as well. And if God is concerned about sinners to the point that he pursues them with the gospel, then we, people who have received the gospel, should also be concerned about reaching sinners with the gospel. This is why Jesus came. In Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and what? Save the lost. He came to seek and save the lost. The Lord is unrelenting in His purposes and His mission. But Jonah, his prophet, is anything but unrelenting. And it shows in his preaching. Jonah is more reluctant than he is unrelenting. Look at this number two in verse four, the reluctant prophet. So Jonah does better the second time around like we all do, right? First time around we're not very good, right? Second time around we usually get it. So the first time he said, you know, it said, Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh, right? Well, he does half of it, right? He, he, uh, he partially obeys. He arises but he flees in chapter 1. Now here we have Jonah arising and going just as the Lord instructed him. So Jonah, Jonah's off to a good start, right? He's off to a good start on his second chance. And so look what he does. He goes and he preaches just as the Lord instructs. But look what he says. His, um, look what he says in verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the end of his preaching. That's the end of his sermon. It's a very short sermon. It's actually only five words in Hebrew. And I know what you're thinking. Wes, I wish your sermons were only five words. Take a hint from Jonah's book and preach that long. Right? But I can't do that. But I actually think the brevity of Jonah's sermon actually says something about Jonah himself. I don't think the brevity is actually good here. This 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Okay, I'm done. I don't think that brevity is actually a good thing for Jonah. I think his brevity could indicate maybe Jonah's skepticism, cynicism maybe, his reluctance. 
almost of like, Lord, it's not going to do any good. It's not going to do any good. No change is going to come about. I'm going to say these things, but it's going to go in one ear, out the other. It's not going to do any good. Two, two authors say it like this, indicating that the brevity of Jonah's sermon actually indicates something wrong about Jonah himself. One author says it this way, the brevity of the sermon could also be an indication of Jonah's lack of enthusiasm for the task at hand. Another author by the name of Richard Youngblood says this, aspects of Jonah's delivery of the oracle underscore the prophet's ambivalence toward his task. Is that just the brevity says something, right? It says Jonah's heart really isn't in this because he really doesn't believe that anything will come about. He doesn't really believe that Nineveh is actually going to change their ways when they hear this warning. But let's just, let's take apart what he actually says. Because I think Jonah makes some assumptions here in what he preaches. Is that Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. All right? So in 40 days, they're going to be overthrown. And Jonah assumes that this is going to be their end. This will certainly be Nineveh's end. That, that's going to be the last day. They get, look, Nineveh, you got 40 days to live. Enjoy it. YOLO, right? Have it up, because you only got 40, 40 days of it. So Jonah assumes the outcome of this is going to be destruction. For He doesn't assume that they're going to change their ways. He assumes that they're going to be destroyed. That's what he thinks the word overthrown means. But you know what's interesting? And we're about to just do a little bit of a nerd moment for a second. And just stick with me real quick. Is that the word here in Hebrew for overthrown, uh, it actually has two senses to it. Is that one sense is what you get in, in Genesis 19 with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Is that they're going to be overthrown. That's a destructive sense of this word. That they'll be overthrown. Clearly, it is their destruction. But also this word can be used in a transformative sense in the sense of turn away or change of heart, like you see in Jeremiah 31, 13, that their mourning turned into joy. So that's a different, two different senses of that word. One, destruction. The other, change of heart, change of attitude. But which one do you think Jonah thinks it means? Destruction. He's like, no, it, it, it only means destruction. Right, but Jonah is actually—he's actually assuming too much here. Jonah expects the Lord to destroy Nineveh, but the verb here, this overthrown, is ambiguous, and it leaves open the possibility that the Ninevites may turn away from their evil. Is that Nineveh's destruction is not an open and shut case here? They could repent, they could turn away from their evil, and they could be delivered. But if they remain, they will be destroyed. But there is no possibility here for Jonah. It's only, it's only going to turn out one way, their destruction. And that is Jonah assuming way too much that, hey, God could actually do a work and actually change these people's hearts. And man, don't we often do that like Jonah with people? Don't we often do that? Oh, it's, it won't do any good. It won't, do, it won't do any good to talk with them. It, it, just leave them alone. They, 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 they're too hard-hearted. They're done. They, you, you, just leave them alone. Leave them be. Won't do any good. They are too far, what? Too far gone. 
Man, that sure doesn't seem to be God's character here in Jonah 3. To believe people to be too far gone. Unreachable. Right? Is that it seems that even the furthest from God can be brought near to God. And what's even most interesting is that the person who is the furthest away from God right now is not the Ninevites, but Jonah himself. The person who is actually supposed to be closest to God is actually furthest away, and the people you would expect to be furthest away from God are actually going to come the closest to Him. Right? And I, I would just say this, is that consider for us, Crosspoint, when we begin to have these thoughts of people maybe that you interact with uh, at your work or maybe in your neighborhood or maybe uh, just family members who are unbelievers who are just hard-hearted and they show it and you just have this sense of too far gone, too far out there, unreachable, will never understand, will never get it. I would just ask this, is that maybe that's not an indication of how far they're away from God. Maybe it's an indication of how far away you are from God. Because that, that perception of people is that they're too far gone. They're too far away. They cannot be reached. They cannot be... In, God could never possibly intervene in that person's life. They are too hard-hearted. Man, does that not say man is much bigger than God? And I would say this. If we get to that sense of where we believe people are unreachable, then we are, we are not and do not have the same heart of God. That God can, through many means, bring people to Himself. What I think we also learn from this kind of sense of two people are too far gone is that we become ministry skeptics and gospel skeptics and cynics and just people who are reluctant of the gospel is that sometimes we think our ministry efforts you know, are just in vain. Is that sometimes our efforts in ministry are shrouded by cynicism. And look, brothers and sisters, I was convicted about this this morning at 6 a.m. Wes McKay is too often a cynic and reluctant in ministry. It won't do any good, Wes, what you do. It won't do any good. Why, why do you do these things? So Jonah is a picture of Wes McKay when I read this text. Is that, man, I'm a cynic and a gospel skeptic at times. I see all the problems. I see all the negatives. I see all the hurdles. Say, so look at everything that's in our way. Look at, look at everything that could possibly go wrong. Look at all the problems with these things. What's the point? What's the point in doing this? What's the point? I'm a, go I'm a gospel cynic. I'm a ministry cynic sometimes. A skeptic. But man, that is not the gospel, right? Is that when we minister, let's truly minister out of a heart that believes. If the Lord wills, then it will be. If the Lord wills. Rather than whatever we do won't do any good. Right? Is that don't allow cynicism, skepticism, reluctance keep us from actually fulfilling our mission here at Cross Point Baptist Church to make disciples of all nations for the good of all people and for the glory of God. 
that sometimes that can get shrouded. Well, well, we're too small, or we don't have enough resources, or we don't have enough people, or we don't have this, we don't have that, we don't, we don't offer this and things like that. Is that we get so shrouded with hurdles and problems and skepticism. Oh, nobody's going to show up. Nothing's going to come. No, no, no product will be have. Skepticism shrouds and overcomes ministry. And when I would just say this, if it is the Lord's will, will it not be? Will it not be? Minister, we should minister out of expectation, not reluctance. The great missionary William Carey said this, and this is a good line if you want to write it down. William Carey said this, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And I pray that that is the heartbeat of Crosspoint when we seek to make disciples. Is that when we seek to make disciples, whatever it may be, if it's a Sunday morning, if it's a Sunday night, if it's an outreach to New Orleans, if it's to Uganda, wherever it may be, is that we expect God to do big things. We don't let cynicism and reluctance and skepticism shroud it because we know that our God can do big things. And so we attempt big things for God. Because we know that God, if it will, if He wills it, it will be. So, this is what God does here in Nineveh. Despite Jonah's reluctance and the brevity of his sermon and almost the sense of it won't do any good, is that God does amazing things in Nineveh. Look at this, verses 5-9. through nine. The repentant pagans is that many of you are aware of the revivals that happen all around the world. Great revivals that have happened with, in the Great Awakening or in Billy Graham revivals where people come and respond. You know, I'm, I'm familiar with the, um, the, uh, the Mississippi Squirrel revival that happened in Pascagoula. Are you not aware of this one? <laughs> That's for Dale Lee. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go check Ray Stevens when a squirrel goes berserk in the First Southern Baptist Church. Sweet First Self-Righteous Church. Same thing. First Self-Righteous Church in the sweet little town. Pascagoula. There was a revival that day, am I right? And so... We are aware of miraculous workings that God does in different places and different times among different people. And as great as the Great Awakening was, as great as Billy Graham's Big Tent Revivals is here, we have an even more miraculous story recorded for us here in Jonah chapter 3 where a group of Ninevites who look like the most unlikely of converts respond in faith and repentance. So let's just look at this in verses 5 through 9. Is that the focus here in verses 5 through 9 after Jonah preaches his sermon is not on Jonah. I mean the, the, the focus goes away from Jonah, away from his preaching, and it goes on the Ninevites, right? It goes on the pagans. That's where all the focus is on here. And what's even most interesting is this. The, you know, Jonah preaches this 40 days and you will be overthrown. And you know what? The Ninevites are given four days to repent. But the very next verse says what? And the people of Nineveh what? 
Man, they didn't need 40 days, right? The very next verse, they didn't need to like have a meeting and call a vote and things like that. Hey, guys, everybody heard what uh, that Jonah, that guy said? Let's take a vote. Anybody want to, who, who votes to change their ways? Who votes to stay the same? No, they didn't need anything like that. They hear the message as poor as it was, and they believe. And they believe in God. And this isn't just like false belief. This isn't like pseudo-belief. Like, oh, uh, I don't know, Wes, this doesn't seem really genuine, right, what they're doing. I mean, this seems to be genuine belief to me. This is the same word, this word believe, is the same word that occurs in Genesis 15, 6, when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. I, I think that's a pretty real faith right there in Abraham. And the same word is being used here of the Ninevites. So this doesn't seem to be a false faith. And, and not only that, they show that this is genuine belief in how they respond. They demonstrate their belief and their repentance. Look at this. Look at what they do. Is that they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word even reached the king. And he got off his throne, right? He got off his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth. And he sat in ashes. And then he called everyone in Nineveh, all, all the Ninevites. He said, everybody, there is going to be a fast. And it's not just going to be the people that fast. I want even your cows. Even the cows are going to be repenting here. Right? Which I said this a couple weeks ago. You know, the whale or the, the fish was more obedient than the prophet Jonah. Now we're getting the cows. The cows are now even more obedient than the prophet Jonah. They're repenting in sackcloth and ashes, fasting here. And so they're, they're demonstrating their faith. They're demonstrating their belief and their repentance in doing all these things, showing their grief. And their, their repentance isn't just appearance. It is activity, right? And that's what repentance should be. Is that not only do all these things, not only remove your robe and, and cover yourself in sackcloth and ashes and have a fast and all these things, those are all great on themselves, but it must change people and how they live. And he says this, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Is that their repentance begins by showing their grief, but then turning away from how they have been living. And they become a model of repentance, actually later in the Bible, for Jesus. That Jesus brings them up, and we looked at these verses last week in Matthew 12. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is condemning the Pharisees for their lack of repentance, for their lack of responsiveness to him. And basically, if you want me to put my own commentary on what Jesus is saying real quick, he says this, it's crazy that the pagan Ninevites repented at Jonah's poor sermon, his reluctant sermon. They repented at that. And you have the Son of God standing here in front of you, and you're like, no, nope, don't believe it. Are you kidding me? That's what, that's what the Ninevites are going to do at the judgment in the Pharisees. Are you kidding me? We heard the worst sermon, in, well, except for that West guy who's going to come later on. We heard the West ser worst sermon ever in my life, and we repented and trusted God. And you had Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, standing in front of you saying, repent, 
for the kingdom of God is at hand. And you're like, nah, I'm gonna think, I think I need to see some signs or something. You know, I think that would help. It's ridiculous. That's what they're going to say. And what's even more interesting is that that shows this genuine repentance and faith of the Ninevites is that there is no presumption on their part. They don't do any of this out of any assumption made that God is even going to show them mercy. Look what he says, this. He, the, the king and all of them, he tells them, okay, do the fast, cover yourself with sackcloth and ashes, nobody eat anything, nobody taste anything, nobody drink anything. And then he says this, which is almost like a, a sad two words in verse 9. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe God will show us mercy. This is the same thing that the sailors said over when the, the waves had been hitting the boat and they go to Jonah. And this is verse 6 of chapter 1. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us thought. Do you see this? There is no assumption or presumption on the part of the sailors or on the part of the Ninevites. That, hey, look, we're going to do all these things and God's going to forgive us. They don't have that kind of repentance. They're like, we're going to do all these things for God, and we just pray that God will show us mercy, not assuming on Him. They are unassuming in their repentance. They repent in hopes that God will show mercy instead of justice that they deserve. They don't presume upon His grace. T.D. Alexander says it well. He says this, The Ninevites understand that God is under, is under no obligation to pardon them. God is under no obligation to pardon them. So they say, we're going to repent. We're going to do all these things. We're going to turn from our evil ways. And who knows? God may forgive us. And man, would we, if we would be like the Ninevites in our repentance, unassuming of God's grace. Because God's grace, when we repent, shouldn't lead us to passivity or unconcern or licentiousness. I ain't worried. God will forgive me. Ah, no big deal. He, he'll forgive me. We don't see that in the Ninevites. They're not like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll do all these things. He'll, he'll wipe the slate clean. We'll be good tomorrow. Oh. But too often, I feel like that's maybe how we repent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No big deal. Well, you know, I'll say my sorries to God. We'll be okay. We'll be back on good terms. That's not true repentance. True repentance begins with us acknowledging and grieving over the gravity of our sin. Over the gravity is that we feel the seriousness and the weight of the sin against God. And that's what the Ninevites are feeling. Is that they feel, and this is what Paul is driving us at in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there is a grief that is good. Grief that is good that we feel grieved over our sin and that grief leads us to repentance and to salvation. Not like worldly grief that leads to death. But this grief where we feel over sin, it actually pushes us to Christ. That's where repentance begins. Is that acknowledging and grieving over your sin. And that it doesn't end there. Is that true repentance isn't just acknowledging and grieving over your sin, but you are actively denouncing and rejecting it, just as, the, just as the Ninevites did. is that They recognize the deplorable nature of their sin. They recognize how bad it is, and they don't want to stay in it. That's why the king says, 
turn from your evil ways. We cannot continue living like this. And I would just beseech us, Crosspoint, is that we both, we all, I think, struggle with these things. One, feeling the deep gravity over our sin against God. And two, actually turning away from our, our sin. And I would say this is that right now you may be in a situation that you just feel like, man, I can't turn away. I'm just struggling with this sin. I'm captured in it. And I, I would just encourage you with this. If you truly are in Christ Jesus, you have everything that you need to turn away from your sin. You have the Spirit of God in you. You have God's Word to direct you. And you have God's people to help you. Is that You have everything that you need. God has equipped you with everything that you need to turn away from your sin. You have God's Spirit to, to guide you. God's Word to instruct you and God's people to surround you, to help you turn away from your sin. So, this is what the Ninevites do. And then we get a different picture of our Lord here. Not completely different, but within His same characters, that we see the relenting Lord. Number 4 in verse 10. Look at the beginning of Jonah chapter 3. We saw the unrelenting Lord, right? Is that He's unrelenting in His purpose, in His mission. He's continuing to go after His desires and His will. But now we're getting the relenting Lord where God actually relents from the disaster that He had said He would do in verse 10. How can that be? How can God be unrelenting yet relenting? That sounds like, I mean, oxymoron, contradiction, whatever it may be. How can He be both? Well, He can. Though the Lord is unrelenting in His pursuit of Jonah, He is also relenting in His anger towards the Ninevites because of their repentance. And this is not like, uh, unlike the Lord to relent from disaster. We see that in Exodus chapter 32, if you remember that, is that Israel, they, they make a golden calf and they worship it. But in Exodus 32, 14, is that when Moses intercedes on their behalf and they turn and the Lord relents from the disaster that He was going to bring upon them for their sin. This is not inconsistent with God's character. He's not changing himself here. Him relenting is part of his character. That's what he does. His willingness to relent from his wrath is consistent with his character. Jeremiah 18 says this. This is verses 7 through 8. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. God's character is one who is, yes, wrathful and brings justice, but He also is relenting and He will forgive. And this is, again, Exodus 34. We've read this passage over and over again and we'll hear it next week too. The Lord passed before Him. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But it goes on to say, but who will by no means clear the guilty? It's that God can be one who is forgiving and relenting and also unrelenting. That God is truly glorified for being just and righteous, yet truly gracious and merciful. And I will say this to you, Crosspoint, you don't want a God 
who is just one or the other. You don't want that kind of God who is just gracious and not just. And you don't want a God who is just just and not gracious. We need a God who holds all these characteristics together in balance, who can be all things. And isn't that good news that God is consistent with His character? Unlike us, who fluctuate day by day in how we're feeling, right? I praise the Lord, I'm, I'm not God. And I think I just heard my wife say amen. Is that we fluctuate day to day in our feelings towards others around us. One day we can be super just, not merciful. One day we can be super gracious and not just. But God is perfectly all these traits and attributes all at the same time. Praise God that He does not fluctuate back and forth, good day to bad day. And we find out here that God is willing and ready to forgive. Is that too often God is presented in this case of like He's got His finger on the trigger and He is just ready to pull the trigger right when you mess up. He's got you in the crosshairs and He's ready to take you out whenever you step out of line. That's not the picture that we get here in Jonah chapter 3 is that God is gracious and forgiving and ready to forgive those who will come to Him in humble repentance. And I would say that to you this morning. If you are not in Christ Jesus, God forgives those who approach Him in humble repentance. God forgives those. If you draw near to God in humble repentance, He will not turn you away or meet you with disgust, but with grace. As 1 John 1, nine says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that God meets us with grace and forgiveness when we come to Him in humble repentance, not presuming upon His grace, but freely offering ourselves, throwing ourselves on the altar of His mercy and grace, saying, I, I'm not going to assume anything about you, O God. God, I ask that you would show me mercy and grace, though I do not deserve it. This morning, if that is you, if you have not received God's grace and mercy this morning, know that this morning you do not have to leave that way. You can leave having received God's mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And guess what? The only criteria is this, that you meet Him in humble repentance. That you meet Him saying, I have nothing to offer you, but you have everything to offer me, O God. And I want to turn away from my evil ways right now and follow you. And this is what God has done to make that possible for us. To make it possible for you to meet Him in humble repentance, here's what God has done. Is that God has sent Jesus, the obedient one, the most humble one, and He has come, and He has bore our sins in His body on the tree. He has taken our shame our iniquity, our transgression, every evil thought and every evil deed He has taken upon Himself. And He's died for it. He's taken the punishment that we deserve. The justice that the Ninevites deserved fell on Jesus the Messiah. And He took it. The justice that we deserve, if you're in Christ Jesus, it falls on Him. And He willfully takes that, God's wrath on Himself, so that you may walk in life and righteousness and forgiveness and mercy and grace. This morning, 
If you meet God in humble repentance, He will meet you with grace and mercy. That is not just for the unbeliever. That is for us too, Crosspoint, for the believer. If you meet God in humble repentance, in confession of your sin, He will meet you with grace as well. For His grace extends to all. Let me pray for us. God, You are a God who is compassionate, gracious, abounding in steadfast, loving mercy. God, forgiving iniquity and transgression. God, we praise You for that because we are people who need it so, who need it desperately, O God. Lord, I pray if anyone in here watching online hears this, let them know that they can draw near to You, God, through humble repentance, confession of sin and be met with grace and mercy. And that those who have received that grace and mercy, let us now be people who go out with the greatest passion, with the greatest joy, and with the greatest hope, no skepticism, knowing that you can actually change people and do miraculous revival in us individually, in our body, our local church, and in our city, and in our world. Lord, we love you. Help us, oh God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to invite the band back up here this morning.